Turn to Matthew 24 in your Bible. Hopefully you've got one with you. So part of the difficulty and uh, even temptation of this is to uh, to dive into specifics that most of us recognize can be kind of divisive and we have different understandings and opinions of texts. And so that's not my intent. Um, uh, obviously, uh, I hope that's obvious anyway, that we shouldn't be divisive using the word of God. But um, my intent here is to split up chapter 24 into two sermons this week and next. And so today we're going to tackle the first 35 verses. Sounds like a lot. Um, it'll be a lot as we read through it, but it's going to move quickly. Um, and, and then talk about those things and ask the question at the end. I'll save it till the end, but there's a specific question that we need to evaluate together as we close out with what we're talking about today. But let's start at the beginning with Matthew 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these? Do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I'm the Christ, and they'll lead many astray. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Verse 15, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is in the, on the housetop not go down to take what is left in his house and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And those things had not been, and if those things had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ, false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. 
Verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the son of man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Verse 32. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know the summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time before we dig in here. Lord, we do want to let the text and the context of it drive how we understand this. Lord, so we pray that you would uh, bless your word to our ears. Lord, what we have just done is the most important thing we've done here today. We've we've read your word without error. It will not pass away. Rod Omis' word is going to. The things I'm about to say will, but your word will not. And so we stand on this. Even on a tough text like it is, Lord, we stand on the truth of it. And so we pray that you would expand our understanding of this today, together while we're here, Lord, so that the church may be edified, we may be encouraged, and that you ultimately may be glorified in your name. Amen. So I want to start um, by asking this question, and I actually want a couple people to raise your hands and tell me the answer to this question. Um, have you ever seen anything magnificent? A structure of some kind, some building, some monument. Have you ever seen? What is the most magnificent thing that you have seen? Mickey? I'll say the most Okay. Was that painted desert? Oh, okay. This is in Arizona. Okay. New Mexico. Okay. Anybody else? Amy? Yeah. Yeah. Three stories tall. Wow. Anybody else? Uh, yes, Caden. The Bible. Man, 50 gold stars for you, buddy. You beat me in my own game here. Um, the most magnificent thing we've ever seen. So 
if you look back at the beginning of chapter 24, they, they, they left the temple and they're going to, they're, they're in Jerusalem. And just imagine the scene, what the disciples saw probably for the first time coming in there. These are, these are small town country boys. You know, we can identify. These are small town country boys from Galilee that have found themselves in the big city of Jerusalem and they are just like awestruck with what they're seeing, with the temple, with the city. They just, they hadn't seen anything quite like it in their lives. And they had good reason to be impressed. Uh, some of the stones, get this, some of the stones that were used to build the temple were 40 feet long, 20 feet deep, and, tw- and 12, I'm sorry, 12 feet deep and 12 foot tall. It's, it's a, it's almost a miracle that they could even move stones that big. But that's how big some of these stones were. Who can guess how heavy a stone like that is? 200,000 pounds, give or take. Okay? So huge rocks. I mean, just enormous rocks. The roof, you know, it was nothing special. It was just made of gold. So the sun comes down, hits this golden roof with these huge stones. There's tons, literally tons of white marble, beautiful stone that's just reflecting all of these colors of the sun. And this was just a stunning sight to see, I'm, I'm sure. Um, so when they're impressed by it, and then Jesus says, He says, yeah, you see those things in verse 2. He says, yeah, you see those things? Well, guess what? Not one stone is going to be left on another. I'm sure they're thinking, what? Why? What is happening? And they obviously they ask this question uh, in verse 3. And Jesus' answer to their question of when is this going to happen is is one of the most debated subjects among Christians and really non-Christians alike. Uh, in scripture. And so I just, I just want to say a few things here before we start uh, interpreting and, and figuring things out. Um, number one, there are God-fearing, Bible-believing Christians on both sides of the argument here. If, if Not that there are sides, but if there were, there are Bible-believing, God-fearing Christians on both of these, and they interpret this differently. Okay, number two, disagreement over this kind of a thing should not inhibit fellowship. It should not threaten to cause division in the body. I mean, if it does, I think that that shows we think of ourselves and our opinion a little more highly than we ought to. Um, The things that we agree on as Christians are so much more amazing um, that we should be overwhelmed with those things and Jesus coming that there's not room for discord in the brethren. And lastly, is what Jason was talking about with the kids this morning, that we have to let the text drive the interpretation. We have to let the text inform our opinions and not the other way around. Okay? The biblical text informs our opinions, not our opinions being crammed into the biblical text. And so this is the difference. I mean, we're going to do a little bit of a word study here. This is the difference between, go ahead, exegesis and eisegesis. Okay? These are Im- important words for us to know. 
And so just really briefly want to talk about them. So an exegetical, exegesis, a study of Scripture asks specific questions. Things like, well, what does this passage say? We're not interpreting at this point, which is what does it say on the surface? What does this passage mean then? How does this passage relate to the rest of the Bible? What's the context that it's written in? Okay. And how then at the end, how should this passage affect my life? That's the exegetical reading of a passage of scripture. On the other hand, the eisegetical reason or eisegesis comes from a different point. And it asks the question, well, what idea do I want to present? What scripture then fits in with my idea? And what does my idea then mean to the audience? So these are really two conflicting approaches to understanding and reading scripture. Now, I've simplified them for sake of our time and context today, but that's the basis of what they are. And the starting point of how you read scripture between these two things is obviously vastly different. In one, you approach with the biblical text. And in the other one, you approach, you start with your opinion, your view, your idea. Now, I think all of us can pretty immediately see the problem here. And yet, when we open our Bibles... Many of us use the eisegetical approach and we say, what do I, in my background, in my forming of understanding the Bible, what do I know about this? You read it and well, then that must mean this. We see the problem here, but then it filters through our everyday reading oftentimes. And this is the dangerous inclination of our Christian culture is this. Start with your ideas and opinions, and then use the Bible to back it up. That's what a lot of preachers do. They start with their opinion, and then they find verses that bolster their point. This, in doing this, I hope we'll we'll see here that we're elevating our own understanding above God's Word. Boy, what what an arrogant approach to reading and understanding scripture, that is. To, to force God's word into the box of human understanding is silly. And yet we do it. Um, here's a question for you kids who are involved with AWANA. What does the acronym AWANA stand for? Emery? All right, preacher kid, got it. Yes. So proud. He's right, though. Approved workmen are not ashamed. That's why we call it Awana. Hopefully you knew that. If not, now you do. And it comes from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, that fits into what we're talking about today. says this, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, and who correctly handles the word of truth. Cramming Scripture into our man-made mold honestly, is asking for cultish and unbiblical outshoots. That's what we're going to get when we try to cram our understanding into the Word of God. If we want to, if we want to be approved workmen instead, we need to let the text speak for itself. 
David Platt tells a story. Former uh, IMB uh, missionary president, um, he tells a story about when he was in seminary, him and some friends went down to New Orleans. And I don't know what time of year it was, but they were there in Jackson Square in the four quarters. And they saw, they looked around and they saw uh, fortune tellers. I've never been to this area of the country, but they said they saw fortune tellers and tarot card readers um, and just people like that all over the place, just about on every corner. And so their passion for the gospel led them to think, well, let's set up a table and let's give people their fortune. And so they set up a table and they gave people's fortune from a little bit of a different perspective. So people would come up not knowing who they were. And the, and David Platt and his friends, they would tell people their future didn't look very good. But it could change based on who Jesus is and what he has done for them. And he says that it didn't take long for them to figure out that's not what people were looking for. That's not what they were hoping to hear. See, people wanted details about their lives, right? Who am I going to marry? Am I going to be in a successful job? Um, am I going to be well-known? Uh, how many kids am I going to have? Am I going to remain healthy? Am I going to have a nice, well-paying job? All of these things. They wanted to talk about the specifics of their immediate future, but when David Platt and his friends wanted to talk about eternal future, they turned their ears off. They didn't want to hear it. And it's the same way for us. We don't really want to hear about what matters most, oftentimes. In Matthew 24, our text for today, Jesus starts to talk about the future. He starts to talk about the end of the world. And there's a danger here that we can't ignore. And it's this, we can get so caught up in trying to discern the details that may or may not even be covered in the text that we miss the truths that actually affect our eternity. Just like these people want to know their immediate futures without caring about the end, we can be very similar positions. So here, there are two, in Matthew 24, there are two main prophecies that Jesus talks about, and there are two main events, and I hope to make those clear and help our understanding in it. And uh, as I was reading, um, besides preaching about divorce earlier in Matthew, I probably never studied for a message harder than this. I think that's why God snowed us out last week so I could have more time to study a little bit more, but pouring over commentaries from hundreds of years ago to current ones, to biblical history, to, you know, um, cross-referencing scripture on these things, biblical scholars are right to point out here that when we understand, to understand Matthew 24, we need to distinguish when Jesus is talking about what, okay? Because that's important. We need to understand when Jesus is talking about what. And so in verses 4 through 28, this is the first prophecy, and it concerns the destruction of Jerusalem. The disciples were curious about the timing of everything. So Jesus tells them, he says, hey, here's some true signs. Here's some things that are going to happen. And then here's some things that you need to, to ignore, to not, to not worry about, to not deal with. And these are pointing to Jerusalem's destruction and the temple's destruction. 
in this section, Jesus speaks plainly about the suffering that Christians are going to endure. It's going to happen. The gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all nations. He says right here, Jesus says it, it will be preached to all nations. We can be confident of that by nations here. Um, hopefully we get to some time in another missions discussion that we can talk about this more nations here is referring to people groups. Okay. Not the United States, not Uganda, not these different nations, but people groups. Okay. So the king, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to these people groups and these people groups will, this is an interesting response. They will hate them because of this for the name of Jesus sake of Jesus name. He says right here, people will hate you. What a, what a thing to motivate missions, right? Hey, go and preach the gospel and people are going to hate you for it. And yet we're called to do that, aren't we? In verse 15, if you want to glance there at it, Jesus references uh, Daniel and he talks about the abomination of desolation referenced in Daniel. And that's in different places. I think I have them listed in your notes. You can look them up later. Um, but Daniel foretold, and we preached through Daniel several, probably a couple of years ago. Um, I don't know that those are still online, but you can find them, I think, in the archive and listen again. But Daniel talked about a time when a foreign ruler would come in and conquer Jerusalem, enter the temple, and defame it, specifically offering an abominable sacrifice on the altar. This is what he's referencing here. Now, this would have, for the people hearing this in Jesus' day, this would have sparked some fairly recent memories of history. Okay, um, in around 168 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes came into the temple, erected a pagan altar and sacrificed pigs on it. Now, if you remember about Jewish culture and Jewish history, pigs were not an acceptable sacrifice. They were unclean. It was a big deal. And it was a really big deal that they were sacrificed in a Jewish temple. Um, this was very unsettling for them and they would have probably their minds would have jumped to that pretty quick because it wasn't all that much past that. Um, this was when this happened in around 168 BC, this was definitely a defiling act, but it seems really just to be a foreshadowing of the things that were to come around 70 AD, 40 years, 40 or so years after Jesus said these words, the Roman army came in to Jerusalem and under the rule of Titus swept through and destroyed Jerusalem, totally overtook the Jews. They conquered it completely. It was devastating. If you read history books on this time frame, it is brutal. The Romans came in and the Romans were brutal and the death toll was in the millions. They destroyed the temple and made sacrifices to false gods, defiling the temple again. And it was including their ruler, Titus. They sacrificed to him as a god. The historian Josephus, he's a Jewish historian, he recorded some of these just really horrific accounts of disease, famine, cannibalism, and slavery. 
It was rough. This was not a pleasant time in Jewish history. It's no wonder that Jesus then says, it's, it's going to be really bad for nursing mothers, for newborns, or if it happens in the winter. And he says, when it starts, get out. He says, flee to the mountains. Get out as quickly as you can. That's why he says, don't stop for another set of clothes. <laughs> don't go back and try to get some more food to eat or anything like that. He says, just leave. Go. Guys, this wasn't just some isolated event that only a few people saw. Millions of people saw this destruction of Jerusalem. Millions of people were, inv- were involved. Just like Jesus equates it uh, here in verse 28 or 27 rather, and 28. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So what do, what do dead bodies and vultures and lightning have to do with the second coming of Christ? Think about weather reports for a second. Um, you've Most of you have a smartphone, Probably many of you have weather apps on your smartphone. Some weather apps actually allow you to see the location of lightning strikes on the app in real time, almost. Millions of people can view when lightning strikes. It's not just some isolated thing, although it only strikes in one location usually. It's it's isolated in that sense, but everybody can see it. I was driving, I had a 1990 Trans Am. That was my first real car. Man, such a man back in college days. Saved up and I bought this 1990 Trans Am. I was driving home to my parents' house in Foley. I was on a gravel road and it was storming like crazy. And um, I didn't really see lightning striking anywhere else. But all of a sudden, I just, there was nothing but bright yellow light with purple haze around it. I don't think that was any manifestation of an angel or anything like that. Um, but that's probably as close to lightning as I've ever been. It was, I mean, I couldn't see anything else for that split second. Lightning is a public thing, right? The coming of Christ was going to be a quick and public thing, just like lightning is, just like that. Jerusalem's destruction was going to come just as quickly as the return of the king. As quickly as Jesus comes back was like lightning. And this is, this is part of the difficulty in understanding this whole thing. The judgment of Jerusalem and the final judgment one day greatly resemble one another in a lot of respects. A lot of the la- same language is used. And th- these are two very principal scenes in which our Lord said that he would come either in person or in judgment. The destruction of Jerusalem is described as his coming or his act. And like I said, similar language is used for both events. These words, I believe, had a primary reference to the destruction of Jerusalem. But they were also very full of meaning when applied to his coming judgment as well. Look at verse 28, what we just read. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. The words in this verse are almost proverbial in in a sense. This is what it's going to be like in Christ's judgment. Swift and consistent like how a vulture finds and devours a dead animal in the desert. 
They can see, they can smell, and they can identify a dead animal to find and eat quickly. It's going to be the same way in judgment. And it was the same way with the Roman army. Think about that for a second. In, in 70 AD, when they came into the to destroy Jerusalem, Jerusalem, as we're told in chapter 23, Jesus is talking about all these woes to the Pharisees. He's not painting a very good picture here of the, the people of Israel there in Jerusalem. It was almost like they were a dead, stinky animal. Right? The, the woes talked about Dead men's bones, whitewashed tombs, filthiness on the inside. The Roman armies, like these vultures, they found Jerusalem. And like a vulture does a dead carcass, they devoured it swiftly. And this is the symbolism with lightning and with vultures. But Jesus speaks of another event in verses 29 through 31. It's almost a break. And he starts talking about something different. He starts talking about his imminent return. So he was talking about Jerusalem. Now he's shifted gears a bit. He's talking about his imminent return. The things we see in the text next are this. Stuff like a trumpet blast, stars falling from heaven, Jesus coming on the clouds in glory, angels gathering the elect from all all over the earth, and people everywhere bowing down in respect and awe of the king. Based on this kind of language... I think we have to understand this as something more than just the destruction of Jerusalem. And so we're letting the context of the text drive our interpretation and understanding of it here. The language forces us to interpret it in a specific way. And so remember, we want to understand when Jesus is talking about what. And look at verse 29. This is kind of spells this out. Verse 29, Jesus' words uses the word immediately. Okay? He uses the word immediately. I think we need to understand this as straight away, right away, shortly, soon, before long, or next in order. Immediately, this is going to happen. Now think about world events pertaining to the life of Christ for a second. One of the, not counting prior to Christ's birth. So Jesus is born of a virgin. Never happened before. Changed, changed earth. Um, I mean, our, our calendars are based off of the, the birth of the life of Christ. Um, so he was born of a virgin. That had never happened before. It's never happened since. He lived a perfect life. That had never happened before. Won't ever happen since. He died on a cross. Lots of people had died on a cross, but he made, he was perfect and died on a cross so that his sacrifice could be acceptable to God on our behalf. That had never happened before. Then he not only was killed on a cross for our sin, but he rose again. Other people had been brought back to life, but not in this way. He ascended into heaven to rule with the Father. That publicly proved his deity once and for all. And then he sent his spirit on believers which established the early church and continues to sustain believers today. So the question is, what is the next major event? What is next in order? What is going to come immediately now in order of things in pertaining to Christ's life? What's the next major event? His second coming. 
That's what's coming immediately next. So if we understand the text this way, and I think that we should, the thing that comes immediately next in the order of things is the return of the king. This is what we understand this to be about. The next major movement in the history of the world is the second coming of Christ. The next major movement in the history of the world is the second coming of Christ. That's what 29 through 31 is referring to. Then Jesus shifts gears almost again. And verse 32, he starts talking about this fig tree, right? He says, when it puts leaves on, you know that summer is here. Summer is near. Things are changing is what he's getting at. And things are happening. When you see this, this is a sign that things are happening. When you see the abomination of desolation, when you see people claiming to be Christ, but they're not, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, when the Romans are at the gates, he's saying, know that judgment is near. Judgment on Jerusalem is at hand. In that generation, Jesus says that some of the people there who were listening would see these things happen. And indeed, some of them lived that long to do it. We know John for sure lived that long. So wherever, wherever you are in your understanding of these things, I want to make sure that two things are clear. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. For us, Jerusalem has been destroyed. And secondly, Jesus is going to come back. He's coming back. To the disciples, hearing this for the first time in that day and age, these things were groundbreaking earth-shattering reality here. They, they almost had no category for this in their mind to even process this through. And that's why in the rest of the chapter and even in chapter 25, Jesus is, starts, actually continues explaining these things even more. He's helping them understand it. But he makes this statement at the very end of what we read today that I want to finish with. He says in verse 35, he says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Brothers and sisters, the things of this earth will not last. Our adult Sunday school class today was about consumerism and being consumed by it. That stuff will not last. The clothes on your back, the clothes in your closets, the car you drove in on, the cell phone in your pocket, the computers on your desk at work, those things will not last. And yet, we have a bent towards wanting to love those things more than the giver of those things, don't we? But the things of this world will not last. Think back to the majesty of the temple in Jerusalem. Think back to those things. Think back to some of the, the majestic things that people in this world have built. Probably one of the one of the most majestic that has ever been built was the Tower of Babel, wasn't it? Didn't get finished, but it's probably a splendor to see. Which was the point? They wanted the the glory and not the Lord. But think back to those things, those huge forty foot by twelve by twelve stones that seemed unmovable. They're not left. They're gone. They're broken up. There are pieces of them. But they're not intact anymore. Even the most sturdy, 
even the most beautiful, awe-inspiring, jaw-dropping things this world has to offer is passing away, brothers and sisters. It is, they are, they are here for a moment and then they're gone. And I would, I would contend with you that putting your ultimate hope in the things of this world is not just unwise, it's ungodly. It's sinful to put our ultimate hope in the things of this world. No matter how you interpret some of the details of this text here, there's no denying that Jesus accurately predicted the the destruction of Jerusalem 40 years after saying this. This should help us understand that Jesus is not, like there were in New Orleans, some shady fortune teller who guesses at the future. That's not our God. That's not who Jesus is. He's the Lord. He is not just some good teacher offering his opinion. He speaks with authority. He said that Jerusalem was going to fall, and it happened just like he said it would. He said he's coming back one day, and so guess what? If he said Jerusalem would be destroyed, and it was, and he said he's coming back one day, he's going to come back one day. He's on his way. He's coming back just like he said. And so here's the question that we need to ask ourselves. Will you be ready? Will I be ready for that day? For those without Christ, the reality is, listen, hear me, hear me this morning. The reality is you're not ready. For those without Christ, you are not ready for his return. You're still living for yourself and you've not surrendered your life to Christ. And if Christ returns while you're still in that condition, you will face the full wrath of God and his justice will be right in your life and in your judgment. For Jesus' disciples who are here today, and I'm counting, if you're following Christ, you're his disciple, that's you. If you're here today, you, you're ready for that eternal destination in the sense that you are prepared. That's where your end will be spent. Praise God for that. That's a work of Christ on the cross through God's perfect knowledge and plan. You've put your trust and your hope in Christ for salvation. And so he has now taken the full wrath of God instead of you. And what a beautiful picture. You've been saved by his blood. Praise the Lord. But there's more to be ready for in these last days. Your work is not through. You don't just sit back, arms folded, iced tea in hand, and wait until Jesus comes back. I know it's tempting. We pray for it to come. I don't think we're wrong to do that. But we need to recognize, and this is what we'll focus on more next week, is how to be a profitable Christian while we wait. While we're here, what do we do? But today, we need to focus on this question, will I be ready? Will I trust the authority of Jesus because he knows and ordains the future? Or will I continue to trust my own wisdom and strength? One of those things is passing away, and one of those isn't. Am I ready? That's the question that I want us to evaluate as we think this through. Am I ready? What does that look like? Um, if you want to know more, I invite you to come 
talk with myself, talk with Pastor Jason, talk with any of our Sunday school teachers. You could probably just pick any church member out of here and ask them that question. What do I need to do to be ready? Let's pray. Lord, you've said a lot today. I've said a lot, but my words mean very little compared to yours. Very little. But Lord, if you've, if, if you've bestowed any kind of um, enlightenment on us here today, man, praise the Lord. We, we give glory to your name for that kind of a thing. Um, we pray, Father, as we seek to let your word drive our opinions that the things that we've discussed would not be a source of contention. Um, absolutely, Lord, we, we want to talk through these things and expand and um, challenge one another in our um, knowledge of your word. Lord, but help us not to think of our own opinion too highly. Help me not to think of my opinion too highly. Lord, help our, your word to take center stage. Heaven and earth, the things of this world will pass away. Lord, they already are. All we have to do is look at our own physical bodies. We are, we are wearing out. This world is winding down. It's preparing for that next major world event of when Jesus returns. Lord, we look forward to that day. We say, come, Lord, quick, quickly, come. But Lord, in the meantime, and now today, help us to evaluate that question. Lord, am I ready? If you came back today, would I be ready or would I face the full wrath of God because Jesus has not taken it on himself. Lord, I pray that you would convict hearts, give comfort to believers who need it. Lord, you have done all that's necessary for us to be saved. Praise the Lord. But Lord, we pray that we would take a serious look here now at what we've talked about, that you would be our life, that you would be our safe place, our safe haven, our guardian, our protector, Lord, and we would not rely on ourselves at all for any of those things. Help us to, to throw ourselves onto the sacrifice of Christ. Thank you for the cross. In his name we pray. Amen.